welcome to Grandiose Grammar. I'm Aoife, the grammar enthusiast and a lecturer at Phillips University at Marburg. This week I have part two of an interview with my friend and colleague Victoria Gott. In this episode we discuss whether or not native English speakers make better language teachers. Victoria speaks from personal experience about raising children bilingually and language acquisition in general. We also discussed the tricky subject of error correction. Do you think that a native speaker of a language automatically makes them better equipped to teach that language? So, for example, we both teach English in various uh, courses at university and we're both native speakers of English. Do you think that maybe we have an advantage over non-native speakers or do you think that that's entirely artificial? I... I think it's artificial. I don't think we have a huge benefit. I think that, um, again, I think it comes down to character, personality, passion for teaching, um, whether you are a good teacher or not. Being a native speaker has its advantages because often people respect you in in a strange kind of way, um, have more respect for a native speaker of a language than they do for somebody who has spent many, many years learning it and perfecting it. But I still think that that it's artificial. I don't, I don't think that being a native speaker makes me a better teacher than somebody who has, has spent many, many years learning it. I think you might be right. In fact, one of our most respected colleagues is a non-native speaker of English and speaks English like you'd never believe. It's amazing. So I think that with a lot of time and effort and, and practice, anyone can become skilled at something. It's about the hours of practice. And really, really wanting it, the passion for something, the love of a language. I think if, if yeah, I think if the love of a language is there and you really want, really want to invest your time and your energy and put your heart and soul into something I think that you can get to the same level as a as a native speaker not to mention the fact that lots of native speakers make mistakes all the time you're raising two children bilingually I am I'm sure that that is absolutely fascinating and hilarious in equal measures (laughs) Um, maybe you could share some of your insights or some of the insights that your children have given you into language acquisition it's definitely interesting. It's something that I studied at university as well. So um, early language acquisition. So I do have to admit or I admit that I read quite a few books before uh, before giving birth about how to teach my children two languages. So we decided for the one parent, one language method. So I only speak most of the time I only speak English and my husband only speaks German. So um, there are other methods, but I think that's the one that works best for us. And we're currently going through a stage with um, our five-year-old who finds it incredibly, incredibly embarrassing that I speak English to him. So um, in any kind of public context he is incredibly embarrassed and wants me to speak 
German to him, especially if his friends can hear. Although, funnily enough, all of his friends think it's really, really cool when they hear me speak English. He's just the one that's completely embarrassed. Um, I don't know. I think I should write all of these, the, the, the cute things that they say and the, the um, Germish or Dinglish that they say. I should write all of those examples down. I'm pretty sure that um, I've heard lots of German children say things like geschreit instead of geschrien. Can you think of examples where your children either um, anglicize a German word or Germanify an English word? So my five-year-old, for example, he, um, anything that is plural is always an S in German. So Fahrrads, Tellers, uh, Stuhls, um, and well, the majority of the time. So when he's talking to me, funnily enough, he's able to switch quite well. So if I hear him talking to his friends about something, he'll say, um, the, he'll say Fahrräder. Um, but if he's talking to me, it's always Fahrrads. So he'll, he'll kind of speak a, a mixture, but his plurals are always um, S. Do you think that's more a reflection of your relationship and the language that you speak to each other rather than his own understanding of, say, Ger- or his internal understanding of German grammar or English grammar? He's bilingual, so he doesn't think, oh, it's a, it's a plural, I have to, um, I have to use an, an S in English when he's speaking. I think it's just because he looks at me and he knows that I speak English and that he, it's just, I think it's just second nature for him, for him to do it when he sees me because of, because of knowing that I speak English. Do you have an Emily example? So it was my husband's birthday the other day and um, when he came home from work, we all sang happy birthday. And even though happy birthday, the song is obviously English, but German children learn how to sing it in English uh, because she learned that song in a German context. She sings happy birthday. <laughs> and, but then in, in a following sentence, she said daddy's birthday. So it's it's quite funny that she, I mean, she's not at the age yet that she can differentiate between something that is in English and something that is German. The five-year-old, he can he he can do that really well. He can completely separate the two languages and know when he needs to speak English and what is English and when he needs to speak German and what is German. But she doesn't do that now at the moment. It's just what she's learned in a specific context and she'll completely mix it up. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. She literally, she was so funny when she sang it. Happy birthday, lieber papi. (laughs) I don't know why she calls him papi either. It's like Spanish. When your children go to school, you're probably going to come up against some sort of English teacher who's just going to insist that something that they do is wrong, even though it's completely acceptable to, to say whatever it is they're saying or to use a word in a particular way or a grammatical structure. How do you think you'll deal with that? I don't think I will have to deal with it. I think James will deal with that very well himself. I think he knows when something's right and when something's wrong. And otherwise he can bring it home to me and he can ask me. I'll pop a little post-it note in his exercise book, the reason why they're wrong and I'm right. I don't think I could leave it. I really don't think I could just leave leave it. I, I, I still think there would be something, there's always going to be something inside of me that wants to correct people's mistakes so that they learn from them and get better. 
if it's something big, if something little, I'd I'd let it slide. I'd make sure that that James knows what's right and what's wrong and why, and teach him to be able to accept other people's mistakes. I guess it moves on to the question of fluency versus accuracy. Do you ever have situations in a classroom where you're listening to a student and in your mind you're having a whole conversation with them but you're not able to say anything because they're having because they're making a presentation for example all the time all the time I try to like make notes so that I can go back to those points but I'd never interrupt I don't think I'd ever interrupt a presentation unless the audience unless everybody else in the room had absolutely no idea what it was about or or something was really really important that they had to understand and there was some kind of confusion then I might correct one word or a pronunciation of something just so I'm sure that nobody else takes that on but otherwise I wouldn't interrupt and I try to make a few notes so I can go back to to um to a point in a conversation that I'd like to start after they've finished a presentation. Do you interrupt your students? Occasionally. It depends on the type of error that they're making. So if it's a pronunciation error and it's one where I think the rest of the class will pick up on it and then start to do it, I'll jump on it so that that doesn't happen. And sometimes if something, if I know something to be factually inaccurate, I'll wait until the end of the presentation and then I'll correct it if I think that's helpful. It doesn't happen that frequently. Don't you think correcting pronunciation errors is a real motivation killer? Absolutely, and I hate it when people do it to me in German. What, interrupt you? Yes. It doesn't happen that frequently now, but I had a point where uh, my husband and I were trying to iron out the, the last few wrinkles in my German. <laughs> <laughs> And I was insisting that any pronunciation error that I made repeatedly be corrected. Yeah. And then sometimes when I was tired, these things would just creep in because that's how it works. And then it would just turn into a sort of snappy, I'm done having this conversation. You have like an emotional, if you've got an emotional kind of connection to a language as well, and you use it in your personal life, professional life, it is really difficult not to to take things personally it's hard that's why I always try especially in a language learning environment not to interrupt not to interrupt to go back to a point in a in a presentation and rephrase the sentence and say it correctly uh, use the correct form and maybe give the the student a nod or a, or a knowing look so they know what I mean and I think usually usually that's enough and enough to not make them feel too uncomfortable not to make everybody else in the room feel uncomfortable and obviously not make me feel uncomfortable as well it's being British it's it's difficult do you think that there are some errors that are so grave that they merit immediate correction if they are errors that 
are going to confuse the audience or could mean something different and also confuse people in that way, then yeah, I, I do think they merit maybe a, a quiet correction. I know that some people, for example, when they interact with students, it doesn't matter whether that's in the spoken word or by email, will correct every error. I disagree with this. I don't think it's a good idea. But do you think there are grammar errors that also merit immediate correction? I think it depends on the context and the situation. If you're working with a language at a at an advanced level, then there are certain errors low-level language errors, A1, A2 level errors that that you can't let slip at a at an advanced level. So I think in it's much easier in writing or via email because you don't have that flow of conversation that's going to be interrupted or you don't have any kind of, yeah, the flow of, of language that's going to stop. It's harder to offend somebody correcting their errors in writing than it is stopping them mid-flow in a sentence so it's always easy to think about how you're going to word the correction or how you're going to express that they need to work on certain language errors it's it's easier in writing I think. One of the things that I find really fascinating about error correction is sometimes when a student is speaking particularly if they're making a presentation and they make these spontaneous errors in the spoken word. If they're presented with this error in the written form, they will immediately see that it's an error and they'll be able to correct it and explain Identify it. it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it comes down to phonetics as well. Phonetically, like the, the difference in phonetics between, especially if I'm thinking of German and uh, errors that German speakers of English make. Beliefs and beliefs. Yeah, I, exactly right. So I think I think that I think that fundamental differences in in phonetics in in both of the language causes students who are really solid writers, advanced writers of English and um, of grammar and of 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 the language in general have difficulties still in pronunciation. I think some pronunciation is something that comes much further down the line, and I think we could probably have an entire podcast on the importance or not of pronunciation but I put an entry in my blog about rote learning so just learning things off by heart mm -hmm. so that you're able to access it in a moment of need what what's your take on that do you think that there's a place for rote learning in education in general and at university specifically I mean learning by we've all done it I mean I think that it does have benefits to learn certain things off by heart. If I think back to the days of, I think in early language learning, like learning basics, like very, very basic rules, um, that learning things off by heart can be beneficial. If I think of children as well, so language acquisition in children, learning things off by heart, the repetition of those kind of things can be really, really beneficial. But I think at the higher the level, um, the more flexible you have to be. And if you had one piece of advice for educators, what would it be? For them, I don't know. I 
I think for for educators now, so for teachers now, I'd say um, be patient. Remember that we've all been there. Learning languages is hard. Yeah, it's it's easy it's easy to forget that sometimes. I think so. Patience is always important for future teachers, future educators. Again, probably along the lines of remember why you love something so much and try to carry that on and to try to to reflect that in your own teaching one day and to it yeah so not just think about the rules and grammar <laughs> no i've said grammar <laughs> <laughs> of course grammar is important of course that there are things that you have to know and you have to be aware of and you have to teach your students one day but still to be yeah to to instill some kind of passion in them as well and to make it fun because like learning languages is fun Thank you to Victoria for sharing her time, experience and knowledge with us. I'm sure she'll be back in the future. If there are questions you'd like me to pose in future interviews, pop on over to the blog and leave a comment for me. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, feel free to contact me via the contact form on grandiosegrammar.com or over on Twitter. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.